And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Cheryl Jones. Open lines these open lines these times. Say that twice, five times, Cheryl. <laughs> you go ahead. I'm after you. What was in your television days? What was the the biggest faux pas you ever did? Oh gosh, I don't think I could repeat it on the air. Oh really? One of those, huh? <laughs> No, it was just a, one of those funny situations. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you one that uh, is repeatable. Um, it's just, it's, it, you know, someone got some words uh, kind of tangled up there. Um, when I first started doing weather, it was a few years ago, and it was before the age of computers came along, and it was pretty manual. Um, I had a board, about as, oh, maybe an 8 by 10 board, and it was, um, I, I drew as I went with a, um, a, a huge magic marker. I had magic markers in different colors and blue for a cold front and red for a warm front. And then I had, uh, I would just draw on highs and lows and precipitation and all that kind of thing. And it was the job of the cameraman on, in the studio to keep the, uh, those, those, uh, jumbo, uh, magic marker pens filled with ink. Well, I don't know if it was done on purpose as a joke or um, not, but once upon a time, I started to draw the low-pressure systems in the warm front, and the whole thing was like a bloody mess on the the uh, on the map. The plexiglass glass map, just red ink, just dripped all over the place. Oh my! So, was the crew laughing? <laughs> yes. Another time, uh, I had to balance, of course, you know, there's a little bit going on in, in the way you handle these things when you're on the air that's not really seen. But I had to balance the plexiglass board and tilt it just a little bit to the front so that there would not be a, a glare from the lights. And somehow, either it just happened or someone uh, thought it would be funny if uh, they just loosened the bolts. And the whole thing started... Um, I could tell when I first touched it, you know, you do the local, you know, the national weather first, and then you, I had to do live commercials then, cue to a commercial break. And during the live commercial, as I was giving the live commercial voice, I would run around and flip over the board. Well, the board wouldn't stay put, as they would say. And so I knew it was going to come down and hit me on the head, and I could see, you know, I knew what was going to happen. But I had to continue talking, and I was trying to wildly motion to the camera guys uh, to come over and, and stabilize the darn thing, but everybody was, they were, they were too overcome with laughter that they wouldn't, <laughs> they didn't come to my assistance. Hmm. So there I was on the air giving the rest of the forecast of the thing bouncing on my head. It was pretty funny. All right, let's take some calls for you. This hour is going to fly by. We'll start by going to Mary in New Jersey. Mary, welcome to the program. Hello, George. Hello, Cheryl. Hi. Hi. That was a great story. <laughs> Good well, reporting. thank you. She was a great, great person to interview. Had a lot of interesting things, and she's still at it. <laughs> Brave to go in those places, I'll tell you. Um, New Jersey, uh, it's been on, you know, on the news. Um, dolphins beaching themselves, whales beaching themselves. They're putting in windmills all along the shoreline, so people are blaming that. And somehow they use sonar. I don't know what for with those windmills, but somehow. Everything's disoriented. They just had to euthanize nine um, of the uh, animals. So I saw like, that. That's just that's it's, it's, heartbreaking. It's you know, I don't remember New Jersey ever having a problem like that until they put these windmills. They're trying to put windmills all over. Guess if you investigate it too deep, you get in trouble because it's 
ties to the um, climate people, whatever. Yeah, what do you think of windmills, Cheryl? Well, I, I, it, it's really disturbing to see how they have those mapped out for for the ocean there and uh, what it does to the birds and the uh, marine life. Like I, I guess they don't stuff. see them, huh? Uh, well, apparently not. Apparently not. And they get caught up in, you know, probably when they get close to it, they get caught up in, in the wind uh, circulating around it, and maybe that's what happens, but... It's pretty sad. I, I, I really wish they could do that within moderation and in a safer way and, and be careful where they put them. East of the Rockies, Joe's in Marion, Ohio. Welcome to the program. Hey, Joe, go ahead. Hello. <clears throat> um, I just heard your show last week about Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Um, my father worked at a radio station here in Marion, and one of the people he worked with was Rod Serling. Wow. One of the best. Yes. And kind of remind me of um, Edgar Allan Poe, because he also was very humorous. Rod Serling was uh, a very intelligent, likable guy, and that's that's fantastic. Is your father still with us? Uh, no, he passed away in 87. Ah, long time ago. Long time ago. But uh, did he have some great stories to tell about Serling? Oh, yes. Um, well, one of the stories, um, Rod was... Um, at the station, he was on the table, and he scratched his sides like an ape. And it turned out that um, a man came in and saw him, and the next day he was fired. They fired Rod Serling? Yes. Well, the man they caught him was the station owner. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I love that story. Thanks. That would have been a classic, huh? Rod Serling fired by a station uh, owner. Yes, I who would have ever thought anyone would fire him? Classic. Joe, Monterey, California. Hello, Joseph. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call, George. Sure. Um, that um, about the the stones, uh, the crystals, the earth will grow stones as it sees uh, necessary. Some stones or some crystals are new on the planet because the changing consciousness of the planet is, is, is ongoing. The crystals are, are found on a lot of different planets, all different types of crystals and stones, and it's called quantum mechanics. That's called entanglement. So when you say what do they transmit, what do they receive, planets talk to each other through the crystals. The Earth is a very physical entity, and the different parts, like we have organs and stuff, it has crystals and oil and all these different minerals. It's called a mineral kingdom, and it's very conscious. And some stones, yes, some stones are interdimensional. They help with vortexes, like labradorite. Uh, you could tell if a, a stone is interdimensional because you could see into it, and there's lots of colors and vibrancy. And then there are stones that come from meteorites, and they and they when they smack into the earth, they create a, a, a frequency, a specific frequency of of the area. Uh, one stone in, in in particular is a green stone. It, it eludes me right now. So an emerald. Uh, emeralds. Okay, so certain crystals have a very high vibration. And emerald has a very high vibration. In fact, the Hermitage has a room uh, with malachite. 
and it's a, a beautiful green uh, stone with like eyes on it, and it's a very powerful stone. And people um, meditate on the eyes of this malachite. If you want to get to know what a stone does, you get a good specimen like a herc of a diamond, which is a very high vibration, or even quartz. And there's all different kinds of quartz, like quartz crystals. Have um, they have a, a phantom, and that's uh, some of them are record keepers. And you see this little pyramid in it. If you sleep with that and hold it in your hand, now it may be uncomfortable. You could do it. You'll start to get more uh, in information from the stone because they are record keepers and they're all in a certain family like your rose quartz are all connected to rose quartz your your um uh, your hercules all connected to hercules uh your your phenakite which is an extremely high vibration is connected to phenakites and also phenakite when i held a big geode of phenakite uh, it was a it was a collector. He showed me his private collection because we were talking about the uh, um, uh, the importance of stones and the interdimensional uh, qualities. And he said, "I have a uh, a, uh, a crystal, a, a geode. It's phenakite. So, well, that's a, the high, one of the highest vibrations." He said, "Yeah, hold this." I held it, and I saw another dimension. It opened up, and I kind of saw shadowy figures and and heard clear audience. So these some of these stones are so powerful that they could raise you and put you in a higher state or even in a different dimension. Well, there's no question about that. There's there's a power about these stones, Cheryl, that... Uh, oh, absolutely. He sounds like a gemologist. Are you a gemologist? I guess he's gone. But Leela did say that she felt that the crystals were living beings, and she had no doubt about it. She felt they were sentient and conscious. And um, that's just really, really amazing, really amazing. And it's no wonder people use them in so many different ways. Have you heard of the bloodstone? Yes, I have. It's got some, some incredible pop medicinal powers and stuff like that, too. It's amazing how they do what they do. That's what really baffles me. It really is. It's amazing. You look at, look at a, a stone like that and think that it's, a living, conscious, sentient being, uh, but certainly uh, they found out a long time ago that the crystals can transmit, and uh, that's really amazing. They um, are just so vital in our electronic components, and they uh, are used to control the frequency of circuits, and so it's just the amazing, the amazing frequencies that they have, and that apparently determines how often uh, the crystal will vibrate, determines uh, all of that when it's exposed to an electric field and, and what it does. Let's go west of the Rockies. Marsha's with us in Los Gatos, California. Hey, Marsh, go ahead. Hello, George. Hey. How are you doing? I am well. Hope you are, too. Oh, I am. I got my phone back. The, the storm took out my landline for like 35 days. I know. Everybody's had trouble like that. <laughs> Jeez, it's crazy. We're all challenged, but, you know, I would like to say to thank Cheryl for bringing up this beautiful woman and her her experiences. And if you've never fallen in love with a crystal, you definitely have something to look forward to. They're so beautiful. Their color, their geometric design, all these beautiful parts of the frequencies of the crystals, they attune to different organs in your body. 
that run on different frequencies. You know, kings and queens all had gems and minerals all around them because it brought them so much joy. So anybody who just wants to put down um, their phone or their computer and go out in the world looking for rocks and minerals and finding crystals, they're everywhere, and just hold them and look at them, and you'll be, be like a someone that's reading a, a, a crystal, um, you know, uh, you know, whole, the ball where the uh, mind, you know, the readers that read things in a crystal ball. It's really, truly that way. You can get light and frequency and joy, and I would just hope everybody will go find this week their own personal crystal to get to know. Well said, Marcia. Well said. And there are crystals in, in our cell phones, Cheryl. Did you know that? Uh, yes, yes. And uh, she mentioned the uh, different frequencies and the different gemstones. And, of course, Leela is a graduate gemologist. But um, in in the, the interview, she did talk about the Japanese scientist that mapped out the frequencies of all the gemstones, the precious and semi-precious, and how they related to healing the body and you know, related to different parts of the body, each one, like a sapphire that works with the nervous system. And uh, it, it's really, it's an addictive uh, area <laughs> to get involved in and, and to uh, see where, you know, just so many different aspects. It's just amazing. Next up, let's go to Ed in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, Eddie. Go ahead. Hey, George. Cheryl, you said the magic word a minute ago, conscious. I was telling George I thought rocks had consciousness a while back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. I think, I think he didn't agree with me at the time that much, but that's right. Uh, I wanted to comment on the fact you interviewed. I think the person a while back we I heard about the insects seventy eighty percent dying off, and birds just some birds dying off. And I was going to mention that uh, a woman in Tennessee has an enclosed water system. And it wasn't right, so this guy came out and she had a dead mouse in it, which isn't good. But no, not at all. In her in her rain gauge, he he took a sterile bottle and reported to her she had E. coli in her rain gauge. Oh, jeez! And she questioned him about it, and being unusual, he said, "Well, I've done this thirty five years. You're right. I never used to see E. coli, but the last seven eight years, it's not that uncommon. So they're dropping E. coli from something on us, and then." One guy in Oregon, the other side of the country, from me sent an email to that podcast, and he said going to and from work in the summer at twilight, he'd get home, he had to clean his windshield. He had so many bugs smashed on his windshield, he could hardly see out of the windshield. And now he says he gets home if he has two bugs smashed on his windshield. So, you know, this really is something, this is not good. I mean. What's your take, Cheryl? Well, there's a lot of a lot of things that are going on that we don't know about. Everything is not really open to the public. Remember, we had Dane Wigginton on not long ago who talked about some of those things going on in the atmosphere. We just don't know. Uh, you know, you can't you can't really confirm or deny unless you're really close to the operation that's going on. But it could be a myriad of things. Um, it could, you know, it could be something that's being put into the, into the atmosphere. Who knows uh, what was on those uh, big balloons that are thought to have been Chinese spy balloons? 
we just don't know a lot of these things and have no way to prove or disprove. That's true. Stephen Tucson, Arizona, is with us. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the program. Good evening, gentle people. Oh, good morning. Hi. You are. What do you think about crystallography and how many cultures have been using it for how many thousands of years? How long do you think it's been going on, Cheryl, where they've been using crystals in their lifestyle? Oh, goodness. Um, I would know, but what's really mysterious is how they know if crystals have been growing for fifty to 60,000 years, too. So it's just a matter of the, uh, I, I guess, the, you know, the advanced nature of archaeology in terms of how they determine these kinds of things. I, I just, you know, I, I, I couldn't answer that question. I'm sure Leela could. Yeah, she probably could. She loves these things, doesn't she? Well, absolutely. I think it's very addictive. And I remember I asked her why she was involved in that and how did she get selected. And she said it was a, a combination of things. She was very athletic. She was a hiker and uh, um, very interested in gemstones and was a graduate gemologist and um, ready to go. So she felt like she just couldn't turn down the invitation, even though it was it was very risky. I'm, she knew it was risky, but had no idea exactly how risky it would be. And as she mentioned, they went down into those caves without any special equipment. Tom and I go to the Gaia Studios in Colorado once a month, and they have in their lobby a crystal, which has got to be two feet by two feet. It's huge. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Can you imagine the abilities to have with that thing? Oh, gosh. Just amazing. Two feet by two feet. Yeah. Wow, I wonder how much that would weigh. It's heavy. I tried to pick it up. I couldn't. I mean, it's really really heavy. Yeah, the estimation of the weight of some of those uh, giant crystal pillars was up to 55,000 pounds. Yeah, I don't think I could pick that up either. Cheryl, we're going to take a short break and come back and take final calls in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast and Open Lines with Cheryl Jones. Carl at the Bronx, New York. Go ahead, Carl. Hi, George. Thank you for your uh, for taking my call. Absolutely. And Cheryl, um, thank you. Um, these, uh, I my my main question is that these um, crystals that were found, did they ever test these crystals for da- data storage, like binary code? or some kind of ancient um, storage of, of data. Because um, even I believe from information I have that even the microchip came out of a UFO, the working microchip, mm. and um, reversed engineered. Um, I have many questions uh, that I, I would like to ask, but I know uh, I can only ask a few. But uh, have they ever been tested for data? Uh, information that could be stored in the crystals? I'm sure they have. Uh, um, all of this information, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg here that we, we can present tonight, but since the time that they initially made these discoveries of these giant pillars of crystals down in those uh, caves in Mexico, um, many, many um, astrobiologists, 
geologists and archaeologists from around the world, scientists from around the world, have studied the information that has become available uh, to for those. But other but crystals elsewhere, I'm sure that that has been going on. Um, and she talked about you know how those crystals grow there in the caves in the hot uh, hot steamy environment. But um, I'm sure that you could contact her on her website and ask her some specifics about that because uh, she would know. Oh, yeah. She would know more than anybody, wouldn't she? She's an expert on this. Yeah, she's been doing this for years. Fantastic. Cheryl, I want to thank you for being on the program. We'll talk to you in another month. All right. I'll see you here. Cheryl Jones, special, incredible reporter that she is, goes off once a month and does some investigative reports for us. So she does a great job. We get a lot of requests from uh, people to send her to different places, and uh, she handles as many as she can. Now, here's something for your enjoyment. Sit back and enjoy. And uh, if you're in your bedroom, pull the sheets up a little higher over your face. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True. Nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been in M. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad? Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ah, would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, 
but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it was welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with all these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel. Although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room, when I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with a perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. 
It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eve would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity. As officers of the police, a shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. 
I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such as a sound a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark! Louder! 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 Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here! Here! It is the beating of his hideous heart. For Adam Thompson, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Lattasur, Stephanie Smith, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.